Well, good morning, Oakwood family, and welcome to a new series today that we're starting called Kingdom Worker. But before we get into that, just want to acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, I just want to say thanks to uh, the rest of the guys on staff that have been in the pulpit the last few weeks. I just thought they did a great job, and so just want to recognize them. Yeah. I think it's good and healthy for us to hear other voices, and they just did a great job, and I know it was challenging uh, to many of you from the feedback we got, and so just want to say thank you to those guys. Also, just to acknowledge that we had Vacation Bible School this week, great, great week, and uh, so many kids here. We got to meet so many families. We had that theme, Jesus the Greatest Showman, and we, we taught the kids all about that, and, and I just want to say thank you to all the volunteers, but I also want to just recognize you that if you are, uh, this is your first time to Oakwood, your kid came this week, you got invited back to church, and you're here this morning, we just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we trust that you'll find this service a blessing to you and just a draw unto Jesus Christ, and, and uh, that's what we're about here. We just want to lift high the name of Jesus. So we're so glad that you're here this morning. As we begin this series called Kingdom Worker, I want to kind of start at the beginning and, and just understand what we're talking about because we are so far removed uh, from kingdoms and from kings. But we see as we get into the Bible that oftentimes heaven is depicted as a throne room with the God of the universe, God Almighty, sitting on a throne as king. And when, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we are saying that on the throne of our heart will sit now the King, that he will be first and most and highest and best, that, that all, of our, all of our laurels and, and all of our accolades will be focused on him. And not only that, but we will be doing the will of the King in our lives for the rest of eternity. Not only in our lives here in this world, but in our lives to come. And so we are called also that when we accept that free grace and salvation, that free gift from God, we are also called into kingdom work. And it, and it says it, it's clear in scripture that every person is a kingdom worker. Every person is giving at least one spiritual gift and you're to use that gift for service to the kingdom of God. Now, during this series, during this month, you might notice something that's a little bit different in our East Lobby. We actually have a, a wall up there with some, some pallets and some cards, and we want you to take time and go out there and look at that between services, after services. We're calling that the Kingdom Worker Wall. And what we have there is all of the different ministry opportunities here at Oakwood that we have available, and all of those spots and all of those cards are open. They're open. Someone, someone's missing. Somebody in the body that God has developed, that God has called, has not signed up, has not gotten involved. And so if that's you, that might be your next step to following Jesus is, hey, I'm going to get involved in ministry here. I'm not going to just be a consumer. I'm going to be a contributor. I, I, I'm a kingdom worker. I'm called to that because I've accepted Christ Jesus. So I want to get involved in the work to be the hands and feet of Jesus in and outside of the church. And so I, I, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to go to the kingdom worker wall and sign up. So just know that that's available. We want everyone in the church to be involved in some type of ministry because we're called to do that in scripture. We're called to be kingdom workers for God. And because of that kingdom worker mentality, we want to make sure and, and this is where we're going to be in the series today, is just to make sure on the ground level that our hearts are right with Jesus. As I was writing this series, I thought, you know, I could start here and I could start there. And then I kept coming back to, and even this week, I felt like the Lord was leading me to change it up and to say, hey, before we go any further, you got to have your heart right with me. 
You, you got to be all in on this thing. You, you got to love me more than anyone or anything else, as Jesus talked about in Luke 14. You, you have got to be all in on this relationship with Jesus Christ to be fully useful in your kingdom work that God has for you to do. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to begin with this verse from Scripture in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23. So if you have your Bible, please turn there this morning, Luke 9, 23. If you don't have your Bible and you uh, brought one of these with you this morning, please download the Oakwood app. And in the app is a place uh, for sermon notes. And if you click on there, all the Scriptures and all the points will be there for you. There's even a way for you to take notes and save them. So we invite you to uh, interact with the sermon. I, I myself, when I have uh, been just sitting Sitting where you're at over the last few weeks, I have gotten out my phone and engaged the message by using the app, taking notes, looking at the scriptures, reading things for myself. So we invite you to be a part of it that way. Luke 9, 23. Okay, this is in the middle and really kind of toward the front end of Jesus's ministry. He's with the disciples and he's kind of giving them a call out and beginning to expose them to this concept that if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. If you're going to follow me, there are some ramifications to it. If you're really going to be all in with me, then let's look what it says, Luke 9, 23. It says this. This is Jesus, the Son of God, talking. He says, if anyone should come after me, if anyone should come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If anyone should come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, when you hear that, uh, I want to explain because there's so much just in this one little verse. First of all, he says, if, you would, if anyone would come after me. What he means there is if anyone would pursue Jesus Christ. And the idea here in the original language is to pursue as you're pursuing someone that you love. So go back. Go back. So that first love, go back to when you were dating and you were in pursuit of someone. That's what he's talking about. That you would be so into Christ Jesus that you would pursue him as someone that you wanted to date. As someone that might possibly be your life mate. That you would love Jesus and pursue Jesus like that. And Jesus begins here and he says, if anyone should come after me and pursue me like that, then what? He gives us three things. He must deny himself. He must deny himself. In other words, you're denying your will. Now it's all about God's will. You're denying your ways and your selfish ambitions in life. And now it's all about God's ambitions, God's way, God's will. Because why? Because we're kingdom workers and he is our king. And we do what the king asks us to do. So we must deny ourselves. And then he says to take up your cross daily. He's, he's regarding this as sacrifice. Now remember when he's obviously talking about this, this is before he died on the cross. But he's already using this terminology. He's already planting these, these seeds that there will be sacrifice for following Jesus Christ. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, then you know there are some sacrifices that you make for following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords must deny himself, take up this cross daily, and then he says, and follow me, follow me. And what he's saying there is that you're not gonna stray to the left, you're not gonna stray to the right, you're gonna stay on the path, you're gonna follow me closely, you're gonna stay in close proximity to me. You're, you're not gonna get in this, this pattern in your life where you're giving into sinfulness and you're wayward and you're going your own direction. No, you stay in lockstep with me. You don't stray, you stay with Jesus. When Jesus says, follow me. If anyone should come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, 
and follow me. What he's saying there is that there is a cost to following Christ and being his disciple. And I believe Jesus is wanting the disciples to understand that up front. Luke 9, 23. If you went over to Luke 14, about verse 25, there's a section there where Jesus visits this even more in depth. In fact, I think the title of that subsection is called The Cost of Discipleship. It's the cost of being a disciple and following Christ Jesus. There is a cost to it. Now, this makes sense if you think about it, because if you follow leadership in life, if you follow a kingdom in life, sometimes if you follow a career path or something in life, there is a cost to it. Now, we live here in Enid, Oklahoma, and Enid, Oklahoma is considered a military town because of the Air Force Base. In fact, we have many Air Force personnel even in our church. When you sign up for military service and you decide, I'm going to serve my country in this way, in this capacity, it costs you something. And you know what that is. You could be deployed. You could be sent to a place you would never, ever want to visit, wouldn't even imagine ever again, a horrible place on the face of the earth where you have to go defend our country. There are times where you may make a a sacrifice and there's a cost for your family because of that decision, but we would all acknowledge and stand back and say, yes, there is a cost. Other, other career paths in life, it's not just the military, but maybe you work for a Fortune 500 company and there's certain things that will cost you. Maybe it's where you want to live is this place and you have to live here. Or maybe you have to do a certain number of years over here. Or you have to, to be in this position and if you're going to be in this position, you have to work in this facility and it locks you into this kind of payroll and there's a cost. There's a cost to everything. And, and now we're in the Olympics, Right? There's a cost to going to the Olympics. For most of these athletes, it costs them four years of their life, four years of training. For this group of athletes, it's five years of training. Can you imagine dedicating yourself and just hoping as you take on the best athletes in the world, even in the trials here in the United States, that after working for that long, you may not even be able to go to the Olympics. And yet there are so many athletes to do that. Is there a cost? It's a, it's a cost of what they eat. It's a cost of daily training and strength training, and there's just a cost to it. There is a cost to following Jesus Christ. There is a cost to being a kingdom worker. There is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. How we define a disciple here at Oakwood is that it is a fully devoted, lifelong follower of Jesus. Fully devoted, lifelong follower of Jesus, a disciple, it's going to cost you something. The second thing that Jesus, I feel like, is trying to portray here is that to, to serve God fully, you must be surrendered completely. Things like deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. To serve God fully, you must be surrendered completely. And what that means is that our heart must be right. And that's why we have to begin here as kingdom workers Today we're going to look at our hearts. The heart has to be right. Because even if you don't realize it, we talked about this in in a spiritual warfare body, uh, the the full armor of God, the body armor of God. We talked about this in a series several months ago. That there is a spiritual battle going on every day. And whether you realize it or not, it's it's vying for the loyalties of your heart. It is after the loyalties of your heart, your very existence as a person and what you will live your life for and what you as a person will be about. All of those loyalties are in this battle between Satan and God. 
between good and evil. And sometimes when we're engaged in these things, I think we get distracted by things. We just, we get busy and we just don't even think about what we're doing sometimes. And we fall into this pattern with this problem that we have called sin. Three, three letter word, sin. Not a big word, but a really, really big deal. I don't know how you would identify yourself this morning, but I would boldly say I'm a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. I mean, when you look at Jesus Christ and what he did for us, the sacrifice that he made, and not only did he just perish, but it's the way that he perished through this torturous, horrible death on a cross. I'm like, wow, I stand amazed. If you said, Eric, who are you? I would say I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but I have this problem. I have this problem, it's called sin. And even though I know in my mind the right things that I should do, because I've read this word enough and I've studied it and I've memorized it, I've hidden it in my heart, I still struggle with this thing called sin. And so it's really weird because like I know what I should be doing and yet I don't do it. Or sometimes I know I shouldn't be doing that and I do it anyway. Does anyone struggle with that here? And we got sin in your life, you're just like, wow, yeah, okay. A few honest people. The rest of you are liars, which means you're sinning, which means you need this sermon. So, glad we got that out of the way. But that, that is the problem, isn't it? And, and, and what's great about this is that the Apostle Paul struggled with this too. The guy that wrote most of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul actually talks about this in Romans 7. So if you have your Bible, turn, turn over to Romans chapter 7. And if you're in Luke, it's just, just a few books to your right. Just turn, turn just a few books to your right there. Get to the book of Romans chapter 7. Because the Apostle Paul writes about this struggle in Romans chapter 7 and 8. Now, you're going to read the word do here in a minute. Like so many times, it might be confusing. Stay with me, okay? Just stay with me. Bear through this. I'm going to do my best way to explain it, but there's a summary statement in the middle, and then you're, if you don't get it, you're going to go, aha, now I get it. So, so it begins in Romans chapter 7 in verse 15. This is what it says. Apostle Paul's writing here, and he says this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, what he's saying there is the law of God was, was given to us to show us our sinfulness. God says, you know, don't do this, you know, do not lie, and we're all a bunch of liars. And the law shows us the sinfulness in our life. It's, it's like an expose, just exposes the sinfulness in our life. And, and so right there at the very beginning, he says, hey, the, I know the good I want to do, but I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. Now, he's not trying to make an excuse like there's a supernatural sin force that makes me do these things. He's just acknowledging that we have a sinful nature and that we're born with it. Let me give you proof. How many of you ever seen a two-year-old? And how many of you ever seen a two-year-old that sometimes the first words that this one or two-year-old says... It's always what? No. Yeah, you all said it. You know this, right? I mean, isn't that amazing? You know, this sweet little child. Is, you know, she's so cute. And then mom says, okay, let's get on your shoes. We're going to go to the car. No. It's like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Sinful nature. It's with us from the very, very beginning. He says, for I have this desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For I know that good, look at verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good. I know in my mind I should be doing these good things, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Now, if you're to this point now, you're like, oh, do, don't do, 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 do. I, I'm like, what, you know, what is going on here? Here it is, summary statement, verse 21. So he says, I find this law at work. This, I find this rule of thumb in my life, Apostle Paul. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. You ever feel that? I know what good I should be doing, and yet I slip right back into the sin pattern. I know what God has called me to do, and yet I don't do it. And the good things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I hate, I keep on doing them anyway. And so I find this law where, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. There's another place in Scripture where he says, evil is crouching at your door. That's what it feels like. Verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And he gets so desperate here. Listen, listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, what a wretched man I am. What a wretch of a man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? In other words, who's going to rescue me from this life of sin? And then he gives us the remedy. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the remedy. The only way it's possible for you to put off sinfulness of your, in your life is to follow and be close to Jesus Christ. Accept him as your Lord and your Savior. Now I want you to go down to Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 5. And he's still continuing this conversation. And, and here he's talking about the flesh, which is our sinful nature, versus the spirit. And he says, those who live according to the flesh... They have their, what? Their minds set on what the flesh desires. They, they think about it, okay? But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, they do what? They have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit, and that's a capital S, it's God's Holy Spirit that we receive when we accept Christ, by the flesh is that, by the, by the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And isn't that what we want? We want life and we want peace. The mind governed by the flesh, check this out, is hostile to God. That word hostile in the Greek means enmity, animosity, hatred. Gives us the idea of an enemy. The mind governed by the flesh is an enemy to God, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. If you stay in that sinful state, there is no way that you can have unity with God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We have. A big problem. And from the beginning in the garden, the original sin that Adam and Eve committed together, since that time, we find out that sin separates us from God. And that's the devil's end game. This is going to be really challenging this morning. And this may be 
very convicting and a little bit in your face, but I want you to go with me. I think we're way too casual about our sinfulness. Can we just call it what it is? If I posted that statement on Facebook, I wonder how many likes I might get on that. But we kind of get used to it, you know? We kind of have this cavalier attitude about it. You know, you win some, you lose some, right? Right? That's, that's some people's attitude towards sin. It's like, ah, hey, you win some, you lose some. You know? Some people are like, oh, there's enough grace to cover that. I mean, that's why Jesus died in the first place, was to forgive us of our sins. And, you know, Apostle Paul talks about this, Romans 6, 1, doesn't he? He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he answers it by saying, by no means. Don't ever do that. Why? Because we died to sin. How can we stay in it any longer? And yet we have this problem that I think sometimes we are numb to our sinfulness. And we have these attitudes that are, that are just, oh, there's enough grace to cover that. But let me remind you, what nailed Jesus to the cross? Sin. It was your sin. And it was my sin. And the truth is, and what you're trying to get out of Romans 7 and 8 here, what the Apostle Paul is saying here, is that if you let sin dominate you, you have turned against God. Romans 8, 7, let's, let's read it again. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And hopefully by now you're an honest enough person, you can say, yeah, <laughs> you got it. Right on. We have a sin problem. And it's going to be really hard to serve God as a kingdom worker in all of God's fullness and all that he intends us for us to do if we have sin always right there with us and we keep giving in to sin. And so there, there are solutions to this. And I'm going to lay two biblical solutions before you this morning. And the first one is this, is that we need to repent. We need to repent. And, and you've heard that before. We need to repent of our sins. I mean, I'm sure it's been a sermon point a couple times in the last year. We, we're called to repent. We would say this because of what happened in Jerusalem, right? Book of Acts, chapter 2, things around verse 38. Peter's preaching the sermon. The people there in the crowd are like stricken. They said, oh, man, you're right. We have, we have sinned against God. We, we nailed Jesus to the cross. And it wasn't that long. It was like 50 days ago. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what do we need to do? And the first thing out of his mouth, he says, is repent, every one of you. Repent. It's important that we understand what the word repent means. I thought repentance for most of my life was feeling sorry or guilty about your sin. If you feel sorry or you feel guilty about your sin, then that was repentance. I don't like always what we've done in the church with repentance. I always viewed it as repentance was a time that you felt sad about your sins. When we used to uh, do church years ago, we would have this uh, time of invitation is what we called it here at Oakwood, an invitation song. And during that song, people would come forward 
And, and it was a kind of a moment that you could give your life to Christ or you could you know, basically repent of your sins. We, we called it rededicating your life to Jesus Christ. And you're going to repent of these sins and, and hopefully walk in newness of life like it says in Scripture. Maybe, maybe in your context it was called an altar call, but there was this time. And I remember many people in tears many times coming forward. I mean, we had Kleenex boxes all across the front. That's why, that's why the tradition of Kleenex boxes on the front row, okay? It's not to wipe the preacher's spit out of your eyes. It's, it's, it's actually because people would come down front to make that choice, and they would show it by making, coming down front to make that choice. But so many times I wonder, did they really repent? Because the word repentance means literally in the Greek to change your mind. To, to literally to turn your mind. So in essence, what repentance is has nothing to do with feeling guilty about your sins. It just says, I'm going my own way in life, and when I choose to repent, then I'm going to turn, and I'm going to go God's way in life now. That's what it means to repent. It means to turn around, to change your mind, to go God's direction. But so many times we made that time about, you know, crying, and, and, and you know, I feel really sad, and I feel really guilty and feeling guilty if it leads to repentance is a good thing. I'm a fan of guilt if it leads to repentance. But in the scripture, God never calls us to feel guilty. Isn't that amazing? He, he, never, he never calls Jesus and say, hey, I want you to feel guilty and horrible about yourself and your sin. No, he didn't. He said, repent and follow me and leave your life of sin. And yet, I feel like we, we've had this, this challenge in understanding what repentance is. It means a total defection from sin in your life. It means like you're, if you're going this way, you said, I'm not a part of this anymore. It's an absolute decision. I'm going a complete opposite direction in life, and I'm going completely into the king. I'm going completely to the Lord of Lords. And that's where my loyalties lie, and that's what my life is focused on, and that's what life is all about for me. It's no longer about the worldliness. It's no longer about pursuits of worldliness. It's about pursuing God and his son, Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation that leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Understand what that says. That godly sorrow, if you have true godly sorrow in your life, it would bring repentance, the change of mind, the turn in direction, that would lead you to salvation, that you'd be totally committed to Christ Jesus, and it will leave you no regrets in life. But worldly sorrow brings death. When you're just sad about your sins, because let's be truthful, church. Sometimes Christians, as Christians, we feel good about feeling bad about our sins. And that's good enough for us. As long as we feel good about feeling bad about our sins, doesn't mean we need to change anything. There's grace to cover that. And forgiveness. I'll talk to Jesus every once in a while. He forgives me of my sins. It's not good enough to feel good about feeling bad about our sins. Jesus calls us to repent and to change and to go a new way in life and to go a new direction in life. Thank you for that amen. I agree. God is not calling us to feel guilty for our sins. God is calling us for total defection from the world. Do you remember 
in John chapter 8? The woman caught in the act of adultery. What does Jesus say after that exchange? When he saves her life from being stoned, he says, go and sin no more. What was Jesus saying? Repent and go and sin no more. Don't go back to your sinful pattern in life. Follow me. But many churches and many pastors even, let me just be honest and say what we've done with sin. Sometimes I think as we get into this pattern about feeling good, about feeling bad about our sin, we don't actually talk about the sins that we're committing. We like to talk about sins. I would call them sins that are outside of the church for the most part. You know, we're talking about sins like, you know, homosexuality. We're talking about sins like, you know, alcohol and smoking and drinking and we're, we, we like to talk about, uh, you know, uh, sins, you know, like, like stealing. I mean, I understand there might be some people that struggle with all those things. Sometimes we like to talk about abortion, you know. And then they get to thinking, it's like, what do people really struggle with if they're being 100% honest? I'm thinking they probably struggle with worldliness. Let's talk about materialism. This sucks the life out of the ministry to so many churches because the people love their money more than they love Jesus and they can't be generous. Let's talk perhaps about gossip and slander and how if we have a problem with someone, we don't go to them. No, we're going to go on the group chat and talk about it or we're going to go out online and talk about it. We're going to go to Facebook and to social media. We're going to take it there. We're going to get everybody to, you know, yeah, I'm going to like that. I'm give that a thumbs up. And if we're a Christian, oh, hey, I'm not going to thumbs up that one. Mm-mm. I'm being Christian right now. I'm not no thumbs up for me. But we don't have the guts to say, you know what? You shouldn't be posting this. Take it down and go to the person you have a problem with and quit venting online. But yet we get caught in this pattern. And what I'm afraid of is that so many times preachers have, you know, they pound the pulpit about homosexuality and abortion and all of these things. Let's start, you know, if we're going to start doing that, let's start pounding the pulpit about caffeine. Because maybe the church's coffee habit is, is a little out of control. Let's start pounding the pulpit about gossip and slander. Because I've seen more lives torn up by gossip and slander than I know of that have ever been torn up by abortion. And abortion is, is a horrible thing, I understand. It's a human life. But in the scheme of things, I think many more of us struggle with gossip and slander more than abortion, right? Let's start pounding the pulpit and let's start being more concerned as Christians about the sins that we're actually committing and sins that maybe we see more in the church people. You know, we, we, it seems like we like to categorize sinfulness. I mean, Michael talked to us about this just a couple weeks ago with homosexuality. We like to have different levels of sinfulness. As long as you don't go to this level or to this one, I can feel good about feeling bad about my sin because it is a lot less than his or a lot less than hers. And the fact is, does this matter to God? Because it doesn't matter if it matters to me or it matters to you. Does this matter to God? Why did he send Jesus? To forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness so that we would leave our life of sin and follow him completely every day. And I think sometimes we need to quit talking and thinking about the sins outside of the church and let's start talking about our sins inside of the church because I know that materialism and I know that maybe pornography and lust of the flesh has led to a lot more problems within the church 
than some of these other things. Let's address the sins in the room. And you want to know why? It's because Jesus would. He would. Think about the times that Jesus got angry in Scripture. I know some people, like, when you start talking about Jesus getting angry, it's like, oh, Jesus got angry? Yeah. Is it a sin to be angry? No. Can an angry attitude lead to sinfulness? Absolutely. It's called control your tongue. Keep it on lockdown, right? Watch your thought life. Watch, your, watch what you're saying about these people behind their back. You're not going to them directly, right? These things have a way. They have a way with us and they have a way in us. And I think that we need to address the sins in the room because that's what Jesus would do. Three times in scripture it's recorded that Jesus got angry. Do you know who he got angry at? Because you're thinking, the sinners, right? I mean, absolutely. He actually never yelled or never really got angry with a sinner. Tax collectors, prostitutes, other notorious sinners. No, he shared meals with them and tried to love them into the kingdom of God by showing them grace. Who he got mad about in scripture was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the disciples. The three religious groups that, that knew better. Do you remember this? He's, he's mad at the Sadducees because when he came into the temple, the Sadducees had turned the, the outer courts of the, of the temple into a marketplace. And if you remember this, Jesus was so angry that the scripture tells us he actually braided a whip. And he was like, like turning over tables. I, I picture him just like whipping around the leg of a table and going like this and just turns the table over. And, and he was furious because of what they had done and the outer temple courts, there was supposed to be a place to buy sacrifices, and instead it was this place where they were laundering money. And Jesus was angry. Then there was the time with the Pharisees. Do you remember this? Jesus did a healing on the Sabbath day. Oh, my. And they tried to catch him because of the, the law. of Oh, he says you're not supposed to work, and surely healing is work for the Son of God, right? Doing a miracle is work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, should a man not do good on the Sabbath day? What's more worshipful for me to help heal someone to do good? And he was furious with the Pharisees. Those, those ones that thought, oh, our snow-white hands were perfect. And it's like whitewashed tombs, dead man's bones. And then the third time, it's interesting. Jesus was sitting down, and families were coming to Jesus, and they were bringing their little ones, their, the children. And they were bringing the children, and they were sitting them up on Jesus' lap, and he was just enjoying time with children. And you, I, I just picture Jesus was like rubbing their head and asking them how they're doing and just speaking a blessing over them as, as God's son. And, 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 and the disciples come and say, hey, get these kids away from him. You know, Jesus is too important. He didn't have time for child play. Get these away. And Jesus was furious with the disciples. He says, you let the little children come unto me, for, for such as these is the kingdom of God. But you have to become like one of these. Three times Jesus got angry at sin, or three times the people that knew better. Not the people outside of the church. It was the people inside of the church. We need to be a people that live repentance. And repentance means defecting from the world and doing our work for the glory of the king. And we represent the king and we represent him well. And it is more important that we represent him well because of what it represents to the gospel, to the lost and dying world. Jesus is our king and we do what the king wants us to do. So we have repentance. But there's another thing. 
It seems more simple, but I think it's maybe harder to understand. But I'm hoping if you'll just give me the next few minutes that you'll get it. How do we overcome the sin pattern in our life? How do, how do we purify ourselves before our kingdom work and, and be what God's intended for us to be? We need to repent. And then the second one is we need to love God more. Love God more. Love him more than we think we do. Let me explain. If you read the Bible in its entirety from beginning to end, you know that the Bible is a love story. It's a love story of the creator God pursuing his creation. Right at the very beginning of the story, in fact, in chapter 3 of Genesis, the creation says, ah, 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 you may not love me enough. You may be holding out on me. I'm going to eat of this fruit because you may be holding out on me, God. They're deceived by this serpent named Satan, Lucifer, the devil. And because of that, there's this brokenness with God. But all throughout the Bible, all throughout the prophets in the, in the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, and even into the book of Revelation, you see that the Bible is a love story of the pursuit of God for his creation. The pursuit of God wanting a relationship with his children. Wanting a restored relationship to the point that this God would send his one and only son to be a sacrifice once and for all, to forgive these children of their sin and to purify them from all unrighteousness if they'll just accept him. The Bible is a love story to the point of this. The illustration in the scripture is that God is the groom, that Jesus is the groom, and that we are his bride. Now, I know if you're a guy like me, you're like, mm, that's kind of an ooey, gooey, you know, illustration, okay? But if you've ever pursued a woman, or especially if you have taken the covenant vows of marriage, you know exactly what that means and what a big deal it is. That we are the bride of Christ Jesus and that God pursues us because he loves us so much. We are his bride and he is our groom. And when we do that, we don't intentionally hurt our spouse. If you know my spouse, she's way better, better than I am in so many areas. Her heart is so pure, kind, loving, always doing the right thing, always wanting to please God. Even at her own expense, at her own sacrifice, I would never intentionally do anything ever to hurt her. I want to guard her. I want to protect her. I sure don't want to sin against her. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm saying. You, you, you get it. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly how you feel. And sometimes I think as Christians, we can make a lot of excuses for our sin and, you know, all these things. And, you know, there's this reason I don't repent and all these things. But I wonder this sometimes. I talk to people sometimes. I've used this excuse in my own life. I sin because I'm weak. I'm weak in the flesh. You know, I, I, I'm just weak and I give in. And, and, and yet sometimes I have to think back to the picture of Jesus on the cross. The nails in his hand, his body just shredded for me. And remember the high cost of salvation. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus that not only saves us for eternal life, but saves us from our sins. 
that we shouldn't be committing them any longer. Some of us in my mind, I wonder, is it like nailing Jesus on the cross again every time I sin? Is it like pounding in the nails again to him? We're called to repent. We're called to love God more. Let me ask you a really tough question this morning. What if you sin not because you're weak? What if you sin because you don't love God? Or you don't love God more than you love something else? You love the world. Oh, I can't believe that you say that, but that's painful to hear. But, but isn't that the reality? Is that when I choose this way and I'm not repenting of this way, I'm choosing this world, I'm choosing this kingdom, and I'm choosing this king? That Ephesians 2 calls the king of the power of the air, the king of this world, Satan, Lucifer, that I'm choosing this kingdom more than I'm choosing this kingdom. Could it be that we don't love God enough? Now, if you're like me, I, that haunts me. When I look into the face of Jesus on the cross, that haunts me. But why? If I know I can repent and have God's spirit to empower me to turn my life away from sin and to go God's direction. Maybe we sin not because we're weak, but maybe it's because we really don't love God as much as we thought we did or as much as we should. And you may say, okay, great big problem here. I see it now. But how? How do you grow in your love for God? I think you look to Jesus. And you look in the Word and you deeply understand who, what, why, and how. How and why did God do for us what it says in Scripture? And I tell you, if you do that, you will love Jesus even more. And I'll even give you something more tangible than that. Check out a scene from Passion of the Christ. Watch Jesus get torn to shreds and think that every lash and every nail and every moment of that was because of you. And maybe that would help you grow in your love for God more. Repent and love God more. There's a, a movie called First Night. It's from the, from the 90s, and if you've seen it, you know it's about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. King Arthur is Sean Connery, you know? I think it's, uh, I think it's Richard, Richard Gere that plays Lancelot and have Lady Guinevere. But there's a particularly potent scene in that movie that's just crazy when you compare it to what we're talking about this morning. When I watch that scene in the movie, I just feel the betrayal and how it felt to the king. Let, let, let me set up and tell you what happened. At the beginning of the movie, Lancelot had won this thing and this thing called the gauntlet. And whoever won the gauntlet won a kiss from soon-to-be queen. And when he goes up to receive the kiss, he says, I won't kiss unless she asks me for a kiss. And the movie goes on. They get to this scene in the chamber and Lancelot has told Lady Guinevere that I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna leave for good. And there's all this stuff that had happened. And as he turns to walk away, Lady Guinevere says, I owe you a kiss. 
He turns around and she says, I'm asking you. And he runs up and he kisses her. And in the middle of that embrace and that steamy kiss, the king, her husband, opens the door, walks into the room. What's great about that movie is the facial scenes because the next clip is just of King Arthur's face in slow motion. And just the look of betrayal and shock in his eyes will just just make you cry. And then the next shot is a close-up of Lady Guinevere and Lancelot kissing and breaking and looking and being like, oh my goodness, what have I done? The next scene is King Arthur in a chapel with a big cross before him, and he's just crying out, why, why? And the next scene, it's in Lady Guinevere's chamber. King Arthur walks in. Awkward, right? He says, I saw your face and the way you looked at him when you kissed him. And she says, love has many faces. He says, when a woman loves two men, she must choose. And she says emphatically, I choose you. And listen to what the king says. Your will chooses me, but your heart chooses him. And I wonder, is that perhaps how God feels? If God was before us, would he say, how have I failed you? I mean, I've given you life and breath. I've given you some semblance of a family or you wouldn't have even been born. I've provided for you to this point in life. And maybe life in this sin-fallen world, because of sin, not because of me, but because of sin, isn't just right and isn't just perfect. But how have I failed you? Because I gave you Jesus. I gave you Jesus. and, And you sacrificed him on a cross. How have I failed you? What more could I do? And I know inside your heart right now, you're saying there's nothing more you could do, God. There's nothing more you could do. You've done it all. You've given us the ultimate sacrifice in your life. There's nothing more that you could do. And he's saying, how have I failed you? Why can't I have your heart? Why won't you just repent and leave your life of sin and go my direction in life? Kingdom workers, we have to get our hearts right. And we do it by repenting, by loving God more. Something that is really appropriate that we do here at Oakwood is we take Holy Communion. And hopefully you grabbed those emblems when you came in this morning. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna look into this sacrifice. There's bread that represents his body. There's the cup that represents his blood. And when Jesus met with his disciples, he said, every time you do this, I want you to remember me. Remember my sacrifice. Today, I want you to take it a step further and focus on this. What caused the sacrifice? And remember, that's not so you feel guilty. If you walk out of here today feeling guilty, that's on you. No, if you're feeling godly sorrow, it can lead to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leaves no regret. But don't come to this time with worldly sorrow that leads to death. Really, truly give your mind and your heart over to Jesus and understand that in this bread and this cup represents his sacrifice. And he did it 
willingly because he loves you. He's that crazy about you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the apostle Paul and how real he is. I thank you for your word that is so convicting to us. And yes, maybe some of us, Lord, we feel sorrow for our sins. We regret what we said and did this week, this month, this year, for the last five years. We're now at this point where, yes, I feel sorrow and I feel guilt and I feel regret. And God, I pray we don't stay there. I pray that we repent of our sins, that we turn to you. Lord, if we've never called upon your name and accepted you, Lord, that we would just accept you even today. We would not leave this place without calling you Savior and Lord. Lord, there's probably many more of us, though, that we've walked away from you. You have not been the priority of our life. Lord, as we take this communion now, your body and your blood, Lord, use this as a time to remind us of your sacrifice and purify us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins to you, as you give us your grace and forgiveness. God, may we take this with thankfulness. God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for this moment that we can spend with you. And thank you for the matchless grace of Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Just take a few moments and commune with Jesus this morning.